you said catching lobsters is actually very difficult. Yeah. Give you the lobster pot, see how you get on. And uh, I caught absolutely nothing. So, so what did you eat? Did you sort of live on a diet solely? I had a lot of trout. I had a lot of trout, and uh, I mean, the, what, I did. I did have some pot noodles well thrown in because you've got to. You, know, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Country Life Podcast. My name is James Fisher. I'm your host. And we're here to talk about a mix of things that we love here at Country Life, from nature and gardens to homes and interiors, telling behind the scenes takes and anecdotes and delving deeper into the stories we love to share. My guest today is author and writer and editor Patrick Galbraith. Welcome, Patrick. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's an absolute pleasure for you to be here. So um, we're going to start off with asking you some questions about the, the countryside and your relationship to it. Mm -hmm. Is that all right? Yes, please do. Fantastic. Well, let's let's rip in. Uh, what is your first memory of the countryside? I was thinking about this actually recently, and I've got so many, but I think there are moments when my relationship with the countryside really became crystallized. And there was, a, there was a time, I think I must have been about three or four years old, and I was with my parents and there were lots of other adults there. I don't, I don't know what the context was. I think it was some kind of party. Uh -huh. uh, the weather was really poor. It was in, I think, Perthshire. And there was some conversation at breakfast time about uh, the, basically we were going to split into two groups. There was going to be a walking group and there was going to be a fishing group. And I realized at about three o'clock in the afternoon that I'd ended up in the wrong group. And we were walking a hell of a long way, and I to see these little boats in the distance on this lock. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I realized at that point that I loved fishing. I wanted to be fishing. I was obsessed with this idea. Um, but, but anyway, I ended up in the wrong group. I did, later that evening, get to gut the fish, which was really exciting and a very sort of visceral thing. Um, but I think, I think for me, that, that's a really important moment because it was when I, I, I realized in a way that my relationship with the countryside was to do with doing and touching and, and, and tasting, I guess, rather than just looking. Very, very nice. I mean, I think that's an important relationship with, with the countryside to have. What's, what's your favorite place in the countryside? It's really hard. I, I spent a lot of time during lockdown traveling around and talking to people and writing things. And I spent quite a lot of time during lockdown in Dumfries and Galloway, which is very depopulated. And some of your listeners, I'm sure, will have been there. It's very beautiful. Um, but there isn't much in terms of pubs or hotels or, uh, or anything really like that. And what I actually love on the countryside are places that are full of people, uh, people from the countryside, people who are doing rural things. Um, but, but I like people. I, I really, really like people. I like writing about people. I like chatting to people. I get a tremendous amount of energy from people. So, you know, walking into a rural pub where people have muddy boots and maybe there's, you know, a shooting party's come in, there are some guns in the corner, there are some dogs. That's what I, that's what I love. So a couple of pints in the pub in the countryside is, is where it's up for me. And you think the sort of the, the people of the countryside add to its rich tapestry, but yeah, yeah, tremendously. I mean, I think um, I'm possibly jumping ahead here, but there are so many narratives about the countryside and there's so much writing about the countryside, which is really de-peopled writing. Yeah. And and what I think we forget is that is that for lots of people, the countryside is not just home, but it's a place of work. Um, it's a place their families have lived for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's a place which is very storied and rich. And, and a lot of that actually comes from the people. So So those people matter to me. Very nice. I mean, sort of on a similar theme, what is your 
what is your favorite thing about a countryside? Or is it just people again? <laughs> just people, <laughs> pints, dogs. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I think exploring the countryside gives you a very rich understanding of Britain yeah. uh, and the way that Britain's changing and, and also thinking about ecology and birdsong and the way that the dawn chorus has changed. That gives you a, a really interesting understanding of the way that Britain is changing and the way that agriculture is changing. You know, the countryside, I think, in this country is a very, very important thing. And in some ways, I think in Britain, our soul, our complicated soul is a, is a rural one, I think. Mm. Well, it's an interesting idea, sort of how the, how the countryside is itself sort of barometer of society in general. I like the idea that, you know, it's using bird song, you know, the state of things to sort of get general feel of how the world is going yeah yeah um very good so we're going to move on to our next section where we're going to talk about something you did a couple of years ago where you decided for reasons that we don't still quite understand because we didn't tell you to do this to go and live on the island of scarborough uh, by yourself or with with just your dog for for five nights and but, I think it was six nights. Six, I don't think I quite lived there, but yeah. you know, I, I went there for six nights and uh, and seven days. Uh, yeah, and it was it was a fascinating time. It's important to for, for people who aren't aware to to know that Scarborough is uninhabited. Yeah, it's uninhabited there, now. Sort of golfing holiday. It's uninhabited now, but, but once upon a time there were I think I think about fifty or sixty people who lived there. So it was never you know a cosmopolitan hub in a yeah. sense, but but it was people. It was okay, fantastic. Well. When you were there, it was empty. So what inspired you? What made you wake up one morning, sign to email Country Life magazine and go, I would like to spend six days on this uninhabited island and write about it? I think there's a really interesting thing with that one's perception of time when when you're just by yourself. So actually those days went very quickly and my day was sort of structured around, I would get up, I would find some heather, some dried heather and I'd have a little fire and I'd you know, have whatever I could have for breakfast. I caught quite a lot of trout when I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing catching the trout is I had to walk for about two hours to get to the place where I caught the trout. The trout were all very small. So I think in terms of, um, in terms of you know, the calories that I got from these trout versus the calories that I expended actually getting to where the trout were, you, know, you start, to, you start to, to, to make decisions and think about sort of surviving, yeah. uh, which, is, which is really interesting. And it sounds sort of miserable, but actually it puts things in perspective. Um, and everything kind of slows down. So I really, it, it was really fascinating. You, you start to notice things as well. And, um, you know, the phone reception there isn't very good. And of course, there's no way of charging wireless phones. So you just kind of tune out from technology, tune out from all of these things that were very much tuned into, uh, and you tune into other things. What other things did you find yourself tuning into? Was it, was it a sort of, you know, sense of spirituality or was it more an appreciation of nature and the landscape? Was it? I think I think there were a lot of birds there. There were snipes there. There were there was, there was a hen harrier there. But actually, what I found really interesting was exploring these places where people used to live. So at the other end of the island, there is a house, and the island was actually won by somebody in a game of cards in London. There were two sort of gentlemen playing cards, and they kind of ran out of things, I think, to gamble. And yeah. one of them said, "Well, look, you know, it's getting late. What I do have it was a small island in Scotland. You know, I'll throw that in." Yeah. Uh, as so. So this guy ended up winning this island. So there's this house there, which is quite interesting because it's kind of Victorian relic of a you know sporting era. Um, and there are fallow deer on the island, very, very small. Um, and let's just check that. I think that is right. Yeah. Um, and But there are also, there's a chapel that's there and there are these kind of little uh, 
uh, like Bus and Ben kind of houses the remains of. So it's just this very interesting kind of story of human habitation in the Highlands that you can see when you when you explore and you touch and you look at these stones and you're aware that there were people who were walking these same ways that you're walking. I think that's very interesting. You pick your way through an old wood and, and probably you've picked a way for a particular reason, which was maybe the same way that the same reasons that you know, someone picked that way before. So I think that was, again, what's funny is that there weren't any people there, but what I was kind of drawn to was this idea of, 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 of the ghosts of people who had been. It's, it's funny that you mentioned ghosts because I, I remember reading in the piece something about a, a ghost dog that holds the island. Not, not your dog, but another scarier, more haunted dog. Can you, can you tell us oh, a bit really? about that? I can't, yeah, no, that actually does ring a bell. There's so many... I end up going to so many places and writing about so many things I forget, but, the, but the, you're going to have to remind me the details of the ghost dog. Where so I think it was because there's a whirlpool. Of oh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. Corryvreck and Whirlpool. Yeah. So, yeah, so the Corryvreck and Whirlpool, which I think separates Scarborough from Jura, yeah. um, and the, there was a prince who drowned in the Corryvreck and Whirlpool trying to prove to his would-be father-in-law that he was a suitable son-in-law or something like that and i think he drowned and was dragged to the bottom of the pool yeah and uh, his dog sort of wanders the uh, the islands howling and looking for him so, yeah i think george orwell actually also went across the corifrec and whirlpool um there's all kinds of to impress his father-in-law do you not i think he did it because he was on jura and he was writing 1984 and he just wanted something to do and he decided that as somebody who I don't think really could swim and had no knowledge of boating, that what he would try to do was to, to cross this famous world. And he survived. I think maybe his, his niece and nephew were with him. I can't remember the full details. But anyway, sort of top sort of parenting, really, yeah. think about it. Yeah, parenting. <laughs> I noticed, uh, again, in the piece that you sort of wrote that when you were being taken over on the, on the boat to the island, mm. that, that you sort of realised about halfway through the journey to the place that you were sort of kind of gone to yourself, what, why am I doing this? Yeah. What have I done? No, it's very, um, I, I often have that experience, I think, as a as a writer. I, not long after that, very, very different. I ended up in Hull going to see some naturists. It wasn't for um, country life. I don't know, country life quite has the, the stomach for, for naturism in Yorkshire. Uh, but I remember very vividly getting to the gates and the gates opened and this lady called Mo, completely naked, walked out tiny little hire car and she sat next to me in this little hire car so bulged over a little bit of the uh after the gear stick yeah and it was a very similar feeling to when i was going to this island i thought you know why <laughs> but actually i think as a journalist i mean look it's not it's not being a war correspondent yeah at the same time you do want to put yourself into places of discomfort i think to to produce um to produce sort of Great work. And I remember yeah. coming back and the editor of Country Life, Mark Hedges, I'm sure many of you will know, uh, said to me, it was great, but it was only funny in bits. And I said to him, well, yeah, it was only funny in bits. <laughs> <laughs> it was really miserable. Yeah. So, so what, what were some of the funny bits on the island from your time there? I mean, obviously, not a lot of people to sort of tell jokes to. So what did you do to keep yourself busy? Well, I think... You know, you spend a lot of time talking to your dog. That was a real, that was a real part of it. And just this sort of very, very odd thing of like the dog would run out in the cave barking. The dog really assumed this you know, very small dog. And she was yeah. actually at this point quite an old dog, but she really assumed this position of kind of defending the cave and the homestead. So yeah. you know, the whole thing with the whole thing was sort of slightly ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was more just a way of living, actually. You know, I mean, I think if you think of those great narratives of 
of, of, of kind of isolation, like Thoreau's Walden Pond, yeah. whatever. You know, I, I kind of got that at that point. And, and as I say, for somebody who really loves people and loves going to the pub and so on, I think spending time completely by myself was a very valuable thing. So yeah, well, I mean, that's that's an interesting point. You did mention that you had your sort of mobile phone with you. I see we can that that out of battery pretty yeah it did it did actually i actually did have a battery pack but the battery pack wasn't charged uh, uh, i picked up a, i picked up a little battery pack in the open tesco which i'm quite familiar with the open tesco for various reasons yeah um but no it was um it was uh, there was I, I turned my phone on halfway through yeah and i'd written a book review of the book and i hadn't particularly liked the book and the the author of the book was going nuts on social media and it just felt so far away from where I was, and yeah. I just switched the phone back off, and then went fishing, and the sun was going down. And there was something, uh, <laughs> something really beautiful about that moment of just being able. Sorry, thanks. I, I'm not interested. In I, I'm, I'm going to catch some trap. Yeah. I did it like a book. I'm going to go and catch some trap. <laughs> um, so, what was you know how? What were you like as a sort of person? I guess. You know, after you left, did it, did it change it dramatically? Did no, it wasn't long enough. It wasn't long enough to be that. And no, I think, uh, but I think it did make me realize how much I, I, I like spending time with people. And, yeah. and actually, there are other things I've written that have made me realize that. And yeah, again, you know, look, when I went to go see these naturists in Hull, um, those naturists in Hull, it, it made me think a lot about the way that, that we think about um, naturists. So just we think about people in general. Yeah. So, so look, I think so often when I'm writing things, I leave whatever it is I'm doing or whatever it is I'm writing about. And, and I just think, actually, you know what? I think slightly differently as a result of that. And I suppose, hopefully, that comes through in whatever it is that you're writing. And surely that's the whole point of writing, right? I think, sadly, we sort of live in a world where people read to have whatever it is they think about the world reinforced. And I suppose that what I want to write are things that challenge me and also that challenge readers to think slightly differently. Not in a kind of, you know, <laughs> tedious devil's advocate yeah. way, but, you know. I had, a, I had an incident with some naturists in uh, San Francisco at 2014. It's not something that I said, actually. Anyway, not, no, I have certainly haven't ever gone. <laughs> certainly, I'm uh, not, not planning on uh, no. getting back into well, the movement. For reasons that I can't really discuss because the books aren't being announced yet, I'm, I'm currently a member of the British Naturist Society. Ah. It cost five pounds to join. Uh, so that was an experience recently. And when I left the, the Naturists in Hull, I remember saying to myself when I drove through the gates, that is the last time. Uh, and about about three weeks ago, I was naked again in, uh, in Kent, very naked, naked for about twelve miles. Actually. Yeah. Uh So yeah, it's funny the way that the way that we you know we claim that we don't want to do these things, and yet oh, yeah, nature is and yet is again I'm, yeah. I'm back I'm back here. Who would have thought? Uh, but not again. I'm, I'm <laughs> this time. Just going back to the to the island and mm. away from nature and briefly yeah. again. From yeah, well, the funny thing on the island, I wasn't naked at all. No. I, actually, I got to the end of the uh, I got to the end of the of the. You know, that's the thing. You can be yourself, right? Yeah. So everyone said, "Oh, you must have swum loads." Like, no, I don't like swimming. I don't like swimming. It's quite cold, and also the whirlpool. You're by yourself. Yeah. There's the whirlpool, but also you are by yourself, and that's interesting because you start to think just instinctively about safety in a slightly different yeah. way. But uh, but no, I spent I, I wore the same pair of uh, trousers, the same pair of box shorts, uh, the same pair of socks for the, the, the duration, really, which is an interesting... I even grew a little uh, little moustache, so I had a little, little beard, you know. So it's basically just like being back at boarding school, really, when you think about it in terms of, sort of wearing, wearing your boxes for too long. 
I, I didn't know. Just beep yourself. Beep yourself. I don't know anything about that. Um, so you talked about catching fish. I know it's, in the piece you also wrote about you brought a lobster pot with you. That's true. That's true. I often lobster pot. Lobster pot. Always. Yeah. Always. Always. Always on the north line. <laughs> when I'm on the north line, I always have a lobster pot. No, I. I caught nothing in the lobster pot. Yeah. And the guy who gave me the lobster pot, who is a cattle farmer on the island of Lee, said, look, I'll give you the lobster pot. He said, catching lobsters is actually very difficult. I'll yeah. give you the lobster pot, see how you got on. And uh, I caught absolutely nothing. I was there with my tins of cat food, yeah. um, trying to trying to catch lobsters, but no, no luck, no luck. So so what did you eat? Did you sort of live on a diet? So I had a lot of trout. I had a lot of trout. And... Uh, I don't remember what I was like, uh, some sorrel, some yeah. sorrel with some pig nuts. I mean, the what I did, I did have some pot noodles as well thrown in because you've got to, you, know, you can't, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so, I'm yeah, I, I remember it so vividly, the chicken and mushroom pot noodles. Uh, so, yeah, and actually, you know, I learned to do things with the trout and the pot, which is um, a kind of self entire situation, yeah. I guess. You would say, yeah. Right, yeah. Um, a little bit of whiskey. There was some whiskey, actually. There was a little, a little, a little hut on the island, and I found very, very small quantity of whiskey. What on the on the island? On the island, and then how long had it been there? Well, I don't know how long I'd been there, but I, I met this farmer about four years later. Yeah, on the island of Ling, and he said, uh, "He said you were the boy," and I said, "Yeah." He said, "You had that whiskey, didn't you?" Correct. <laughs> and I forgot about this point. I said, "Yeah, I did." I did. Who knows? Very nice. So talk to me about caves. You made you made your home. Yeah, yeah, it's a cave. How do yeah? For those who don't obviously live in caves all the time, how do you choose the non the non troubled Yeah, the non troubled how, yeah. how do you choose a suitable cave? Okay, suitable cave. It's very interesting. I guess this makes you think a little bit like a bear. I guess. Uh, so you just pick your way along the coastline, and uh, you find there was this incredible cave. I don't I don't really know because I don't know much about geology or whatever <laughs> or geography. Would it be geography? I don't know. But uh, cave, cave studies. Yeah. But anyway, there was this cave. It was a terrific cave. A lot of goat shit in the cave because there's these these goats up there. So you know, obviously, it was good enough for the goats. Yeah, good enough for me. And I occasionally still find little bits of goat dropping in clothes that I've got on my sleeping bag and so on. Uh, because for lots of other reasons, I always end up sleeping in a sleeping bag. I have this tiny sleeping bag that I must replace. It belonged to my brother when he was very young. I think he was on like a school trip or something, and you know. He's grown a hell of a lot since then. Comes up like, to just blow my nipples. So I was sleeping in this, and and then my terrier would climb into the bottom and sleep at the bottom. Um, so no, it was a good, it was a, it was a good cave, very good cave. And so your general advice would be, you know, when in Scarborough, do as the goats do. Yeah, exactly. Follow the goats. Definitely uh, follow the goats. What my dog, my dog, unfortunately, um, my dog did uh, attack a goat yeah. on the island. Yeah, very. That was that was a real low point. Sounds rough for everybody. What other what other wildlife did you spot while you were on the island? Uh, the geese flew over every yeah. morning. The, the seeing the snipe was very very nice. Yeah. Um, I think it was, I didn't hear any snipe drumming, which was disappointing. Um, but there were deer on there. There were woodcock on there actually. It was very interesting. So quite late in the year, I, I don't know whether they would be resident or whether they just hadn't left yet. Um, but and actually. Actually, there were also some wild boar on the island, but the less said about them, the better. Okay. We won't bring it up again. Well, that's not can't be doing talk about. Um, you obviously, I'm guessing, brought some books with you to pass the time. What's what would be your yeah. island? You know, not to not to stamp on the IP of a well known uh, radio show on the BBC, but what 
you know, yeah. books are good for reading on a dessert. Uh, so, I mean, I am naturally quite a, I don't believe in, uh, I don't believe in ghosts. Yes. But I, but I, you know, as a, as a, but, but, <laughs> but I am a, a, a writer and I do like ghost stories. I think you're incredibly well structured. I'm very interested in the structure of ghost stories. And I'm also very interested in our relationship with the dark. So I think if you read old kind of sporting journals, you get, you know, wildfowlers who are out in the you know, early 20th century and they do actually believe in ghosts and they believe in ghosts really till quite late. I'm kind of interested in all that kind of thing. So what I try and do if I'm going to be in a, in a, in a, in a spooky situation, uh, and it, it seems laughable when you're sitting in West London, but, you know, it is actually quite spooky. I, I slept for one night, actually not in the cave, in this little hut, and I couldn't sleep at all, hated it. Yeah, but anyway, um, so I took with me uh, Nancy Mitford's The Pursuit of Love, I don't even know why. Yeah. I just thought it would be like a good antidote. To, and uh, I think Uncle Matthew has this like tool that he keeps above the fireplace for like bashing people's brains out. And I just remember reading it and thinking, oh, so this is going to be, <laughs> you know, this is going to be a happy little pick me up. I thought it was going to be like, uh, I thought it was going to be like a, a PG Woodhouse, but you know, it wasn't quite like that. So I guess my last question is just, that, you know, you mentioned sleeping in a, in a tiny little sleeping bag. Well, you know, what was it sort of, like not having any kind of uh, structure to your day in terms of, you know, when you go to bed, what you do during the day. Did you find that sort of impacted just your general day-to-day -day routine? I mean, I was, you know, it's funny because I think, I think I would say that I'm a person who really strives off structure. Yeah. Uh, and yet, and yet, I actually found living without a structure to be very free. I mean, I really, I really, I came back from that island feeling tired, uh -huh. And and I say that I, I thrive off people, but I think there's also a kind of nervousness of being around people. You know what I mean? I mean, there's nothing happier for me than walking into, um, you know, a pub in Soho on a Friday night and it's absolutely random, you know, like walking into a French house or something like that. But at the same time, there's this kind of like anxiety that's, that's born out of being around people. And I guess that's why it's so exciting. And and when you're there, you know, yeah. apart from I was in a great fear of uh, the supernatural and ghosts and all that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, there's very little really to, to worry about. Maybe where your next meal's going to be. Was it odd talking to people again for the first time in six days? You know, what did you say? There's a real love of seeing people, yeah. for sure. I mean, I went back after that to another island, and it, it, this farmer's day has some, um, some lobster. It's the best. It's the best lobster I've ever had. <laughs> it's a little bit like, you know, putting my clothes on again when I left that nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Sliding those trousers on was the, the happiest, you know, getting dressed experience I've ever had. Fantastic. Um, thank you very much. That was a very engaging chat about your time in I'm just going to ask you a few questions because as much as you are a writer and an editor, you're also an author. You have a book or you had a book out called In Search of One Last Song, which has just been released in paperback. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a bit about the book? So... It relates a little bit to what I was saying at the start of this conversation that I kind of became aware, I think, that there are lots of people in the UK who care very deeply about conservation and who have views on how we could do things better, um, but they all really listen to those people. Yeah. So I set out to talk to hedge layers and coppicers uh, and crofters, uh, people doing things like that, sort of traditional land management things um to to talk to them about the way that their world is changing and and to talk to them about the things that they used to see that they no longer see 
And I suppose I wanted to do two things. I wanted to capture a sense of time. So this was during lockdown, which is quite yeah. an extraordinary time to be traveling around. It made this very odd experience. I was thinking about it the other day when I went to the travel lodge in Rochdale because uh, lap wings roost on the roofs of, of, of buildings around there. And yeah. uh, my publisher had written a letter for me to say that I, I don't think he could quite bring himself to say that I was on, you know, uh, essential work. Yeah, it said important work. Important. Yeah. yeah so I uh, bird work. I, yeah, born in bird work. I turned up at Roman Lodge with this piece of paper. It's very strange and like I don't know. It kind of felt like the Civil War or something that I had like a letter to allow me to enter, you know, the sort of city gates. Yeah. But uh, but anyway, what I wanted to do was to build up a sort of picture of of Britain's kind of you know in a sense of like Britain's soul, I think, uh, and to try and really understand Britain. And I spent about three years working on that book. Uh, and and I think I think I I think I I I I got somewhere close. I got closer than I've been before. Um, so it was, it was immensely rewarding. I wanted to understand the way as well that birds inform people's sense of identity. Yeah. Uh, and and sort of people's sense of place. Very nice. And so, what are the, some of the birds that featured in the book? Oh, they're Nightingale, the Nightingale, the Corncrake, the Black Grouse, the Lapwing. I mean, things that are a dire decline, but also things that inform senses of regional identity. Yeah. Um, you know, so, for example, the black grouse. I mean, you know, the king's own Scottish borderers went off to fight with black grouse feathers in their caps. And, oh. and, and you know, in, in, in the places that those men were uh, drawn from, uh, there are very few black grouse now really at all. So that's very interesting, I think, that, you know, when these birds take on a kind of totemic status, but they go, you know, what, what, is, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, the extent to which it's a book about birds is, you know, it, it is about birds, but actually, it's about using birds as a lens and using birds as a way to 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 understand, you know, many things. Yeah. Was that was that always the intention with the book, or was that sort of something that came through researching and writing it? Well, I think it's a really interesting thing. I mean, I'm working on another book at the moment, and at the the way in which a book takes shape is very interesting. Yeah. So, you know, there was a guy who said to me, um, I had a theater production on recently who's developed some work from the book. And there was a guy who said to me how much he enjoyed my book. He said it was a great uh, way to understand masculinity in the modern countryside. Uh -huh. And that's certainly not what I set out to do. But yet, like, I can kind of see what he means. And, that, yeah. and that's really interesting. So I almost think that if you set out to write a book and you know exactly what it is that you want to do, then you limit yourself to attempting to do just that. And actually, it might be that there was something slightly better just on the periphery of that. So yeah. you, you know, I don't know. I, I, I sort of, I'm trying to comfort myself about the book I'm writing at the moment because it's slightly, uh, you know, without an anchor or whatever. But um, yeah. Uh, and what would be sort of some of your highlights from the book? I noticed that you turned part of it into a sort of, yeah, a dramatized piece called The Lapwing Act. Yeah, yeah. Could you talk us, talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, so that was a really interesting collaboration. I actually had a theatre quite near here, a theatre called the Playground Theatre, and I was working with um, a sculptor, a guy called Jack Taylor, with a, a filmmaker, a young American guy called Matt Feldman, a very interesting filmmaker doing stuff with 16mm, and then a, a brilliant sound designer mm -hmm. and musician called Don Buffard. Uh, and it was, uh, it was staged by a guy called Anthony Biggs. And Basically, what we what we did was we we sort of just looked at this chapter and we thought, how can we do something with this on stage? So I was reading little bits of it, but there was 
there was, there was sculptures being made during the production. Yeah. Um, the, the sound designer was happening live. Uh, the sound designer was using found objects that I, that I, you know, so a cattle trough, um, was a crow trap. Yeah. It was the, you know, a bicycle, there was a, there was a chopping trolley that I pulled from the Rochdale Canal. So all sorts of things. It was a really interesting, immersive experience. I mean, you were, you came to one of the nights. Certainly. Tell yeah. me what you, what was, what was your take? Well, I think, you know, I think the thing that was very interesting about the Laughing Act and, and your book in general is that, you know, so much of nature writing we hear or read nowadays is, is, is very romanticized, you know, about sort of, you know, these great big swirling, amazing landscapes of the South Downs or wherever they are. And yours is much different to that because, as you say, it was about birds nesting on the roof of a, of a, of a travel lodge, you know, it felt much more... For, for want of a better word, sort of real and, and rustic and raw. Yeah. So I think, yeah. you know, I think the way you dramatized it was very interesting, but I just found the book as all very interesting because, you know, George Monbiot or whoever it is writes these great sort of searing explanations of, you know, environmental decline. And you, you really got much more into the bones of just actually, you know, these are normal people doing normal things who don't, you know, take the idea of the environment immensely seriously they just know the places where the birds live because that's yeah that's where they grew up you know yeah yeah well i think they're normal people doing extraordinary things yeah um and and you sometimes you know have people who i think are doing things that they think are far more extraordinary than they actually are yeah whereas you know these people really are on the front line trying to save these things yeah um you know and and because they live so closely with these birds uh what what these birds mean to them is very very interesting Fantastic. And the paperback and hardback are available to buy in. No more hardbacks. No more hardbacks. The hardback, hardback is gold. The hardback sold out. Uh, but paperback uh, is, yeah, is out at the moment. You can get it at Waterstones. You can get it at Amazon if you if you can bear to do that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and, and at local bookshops. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Patrick. It's been great having you on. You've been a fantastic guest. Hopefully you will come back. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you all for listening to this episode. There will be programmers uh, attached to it. Um, and thank you very much and goodbye.